Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here. Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension, Lifetime Master Gardener, Garden Columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy that does all the typing at FarmerFred.com, all the ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page at Twitter.com slash Tips. Lots of snark. At uh, the Facebook page, the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, always a garden dialogue going on. And the latest post, how I use the atmospheric river to my advantage. Knowing a heavy rain was forecast and knowing that I needed to make up a seed starting mix that drains easily and also a potting mix that was acid-based, had a low pH, I usually include peat moss. Peat moss, though, is very difficult to moisten, and it's very important that you pre-moisten peat moss in order for the water to stick around long enough to help out to, say, germinate seeds. Otherwise, it just runs right off. So I had a couple of bags of peat moss at the house. I had used some of it. And I had pre-moistened it by taking some and just letting it sit overnight in a bucket of water. That helps. But uh, I, I needed some more and in, in the week ahead. So I basically just uh, opened the bags up and let the rain fill the bags. And you can do that with a garden hose as well. That's one way to uh, moisten peat moss to get it ready for uh, possible use. So... Again, if you're using any sort of peat moss in some sort of a soil mix for whatever reason, it does need to be pre-moistened. And there's my cheap garden tip of the day. All right. And taking a look at the weather for the coming week, it's a mixed bag of things. There's still a little bit of a tug-of-war going on between winter and spring. A bit more rain on the way. Now, fortunately, no atmospheric rivers are in the forecast But there is some showers that will be coming down from the Gulf of Alaska. So there'll be cooler storms. And they're talking about a 20% chance of rain on Tuesday. Not much of a chance. And then a chance of showers Wednesday night and Thursday. The rest of the time, sunny skies for the week, including next Saturday. And temperatures around 70 degrees. Those daytime highs, though, will be dipping down into the 60s, however, come uh, Wednesday and Thursday as that cool Alaskan storm comes in. And overnight lows for the most part, upper 40s to low 50s, although I think Thursday night they're expecting a low around 43. So if you did plant those tomato plants and pepper plants, they could use a bit of warmth, hot caps, the walls of water, for example, or even a row cover put over them can help, especially on a morning that gets down to 43 degrees or so. Tomatoes, and especially peppers, don't like it when nighttime lows dip below 50 degrees. That's why, and Don Shore talks about this a lot over there at Redwood Barn Nursery, how he waits until the nighttime temperatures are consistently at 50 degrees or above before he sticks his summer vegetables in the ground. It's good advice. That's why I, I still insist April 28th should be tomato planting day here in Sacramento, and April 28th will fall on a Saturday this year. Now, of course, I'll be out riding my age on my bike, but (laughs) that's my birthday, too. But that's okay. I have plenty of time. Now, one thing I did, I've been shopping, hitting the nurseries, hitting the plant sales. Great plant sale yesterday, by the way, at American River College, by the way. Excellent selection of plants. And uh, picked up some uh, 
good plants for the future. But when I've uh, earlier in the week went out and got some tomato plants to make sure I got the varieties that were in stock and they were in four inch pots. So the first thing I did when I got home was to transplant them into an easy draining soil mix in one gallon containers. And I have those one gallon containers in a protected area. Though they do get, they're outdoors, they're just in an area that isn't getting buffeted by too much sun or too much wind. And they're growing in those one gallon containers. And then come the end of April, they can go into the ground. And sometime around the second week of May, I'll put the peppers in the ground. Because even in my raised beds, the soil temperature is still below their liking. Tomatoes like a soil temperature that's above 65 degrees, preferably above 70 degrees. Pepper plants, definitely above 70. And if you're going to be starting seeds of melons or squash or corn, they prefer warmer temperatures as well. Sort of the soil temperatures that we get in May of 70 degrees or more. And right now, Soil temperatures are still on the low side. On average, here in the valley, soil temperatures are running between 58 and 63. In the foothills, 50 to 60. That ground is still too cold to be sticking in plants and expect them to grow. They're not going to grow. They're just going to sit there and be stressed. And a stressed plant is an unhappy plant. An unhappy plant attracts bad bugs. So keep your plants strong until later in the month. And then you can go ahead and put them in the ground. And the best way to keep those plants strong is repot them into slightly bigger containers to allow their roots to grow and expand unhindered by those small containers. Now, you may have noticed that when you purchase those four-inch vegetables or annuals, you may see the roots be coming out of the bottom of the container. And then when you pull the plant out of the container... And by the way, I hope you are pulling the plants out of those containers when you go to plant them or transplant them, please. You will notice that the roots are going round and round and round, and they're sort of constricted. You need to loosen up those roots. So you dig the planting hole first where you're going to put them eventually or set up that pot you're going to transplant them to. And then be sure that the soil is moist on that four-inch potted plant. If the soil is moist, then you can easily remove that plant, soil ball and all, from the container. And when you see those roots, you can use your fingers, you can use a trowel, you can use a knife or whatever just to score the root ball on four sides in order to free up those roots and also free up the bottom. And then immediately plant it in a container. I don't like using a granular fertilizer at that time because you don't want granular fertilizers to come in contact with the roots of the plant. So what I like to do is, okay, let's say I've got the planting hole dug. I've popped the plant out of the container. I see that there's some girdling roots, and I free up the roots. I plop that plant into that hole. Now the key, by the way, with tomatoes and peppers is you can plant them deep. So let's say you have a 12-inch tall tomato. You could prune off the lower branches of that tomato plant, leaving only the top two sets of leaves. So basically, you'd be burying about 10 inches of that plant in the ground. It's going to form roots all along that main stem. The same is true with pepper plants. You're going to have a much stronger plant that way. Now, let's say you have a 12-inch tomato plant, 
but you can only dig down 10 inches or so, or 8 inches, or 6 inches. What you can do is dig a trench. Lay the plant sideways and then gently bend up the top of the tomato plant so that the top two sets of leaves are exposed above the soil line. And then just fill in that trench. And that way that plant will develop roots all along that main stem. And again, it's also true with pepper plants as well. So a strategy for getting that plant off to a good start. Now, as far as fertilizing that new plant that you just stuck in the ground, like I said, I don't really like using a granular fertilizer in the planting hole. However, you certainly could mix in a granular fertilizer into the top of the soil and then water it in. Now, I like to use water-soluble fertilizer, so I'll usually use a mix of fish emulsion and kelp meal, seaweed. Use them in combination. The cat loves it. The cat knows when I'm shaking up that big one-gallon container of Alaskan fish emulsion. The cat can hear it. The cat recognizes that sound and comes dashing from wherever Walter is over to the sound of that and just will lick up anything that spills and just hangs around too closely to that big one-gallon container of fish emulsion. So I basically like to fertilize it after I've planted it and filled in the hole. All right, so a good idea to get your plants off to a good start that way. Tell you what, we're going to take a break. When we're going to come back, we're going to talk about a giant rat. It's a rat that's in the South Delta. It's about a 20-pound rodent that is invading gardens and orchards in Stanislaw and southern San Joaquin County, and it's working its way up the Sacramento River. A 20-pound rat with a funny name. We'll find out more when we come back to get growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Have you heard of the Nutria? No, it's not a protein supplement. No, it's not an artificial sweetener. It's a giant rat. A 20-pound swamp rodent. And we're talking with Valerie Cook-Fletcher. She's a senior environmental scientist of the Invasive Species Program with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And Valerie, the Nutria is a rodent that I bet a lot of people have never heard of, and yet it poses a rather big threat to California's levees in the Delta area and elsewhere in the state. And it's uh, probably a a pest that uh, is going to be on people's radar for a while because uh, you people have just uh, discovered 20 of them in the Delta. Absolutely, and and the count is uh, is now up to twenty five so far, um, with a few additional confirmed in some some other locations. Well, let's talk about this giant rodent, the Nutria. It's smaller than a beaver. It's uh, bigger than a muskrat. And where did it come from? So they're native to southern South America, um, but they were originally introduced in um, in the U.S. for their fur. So there was a fur trade back in the thirties and forties. Um, and, you know, they were introduced in California and, and released and persisted for some time before they were eradicated in the 60s. Um, there's, there are still populations that are um, present and, and doing extensive damage in other states, such as Louisiana and um, the Chesapeake Bay area and also Oregon and Washington. You know, in California, we have some, some speculations about um, whether they were intentionally reintroduced. But, you know, at, at this point, we're not exactly clear on, um, on their method for, for this reappearance. 
And to be clear, it's illegal to bring them into California, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, they are a restricted species. So um, the Department of Fish and Wildlife has them listed as a restricted live animal. And then um, the Department of Food and Agriculture also has them listed as an A-rated pest um, that warrants um, quarantine and um, control restricted by multiple agencies. Yeah, besides the uh, burrowing nature of this uh, creature, which can certainly undermine fragile levee systems, it also harbors diseases like tuberculosis that could spread to uh, humans and animals, doesn't it? Correct, um, as well as like septicemia and blood and liver flukes. Um, you know, there are a number of different diseases and parasites that, that they can transmit to, to humans, pets, and livestock as well. So not good news for water supply systems. And it is a prolific breeder, I understand. Something like, uh, what, 200 babies a year? Um, There's been some misinterpretation of that information. From the time a female becomes reproductively mature, which um, is as early as four to six months of age, um, she can result in over 200 additional nutria. So that is her reproductive output as well as her first litter's reproductive output. You know, these things become reproductive by four to six months of age, and um, they can produce three litters per year and then turn around and breed back, you know, within two days of having a litter. So um, with as many as 13 young per litter, that adds up very, very quickly. And then those youngsters can spread out for, what, 50 miles or so? Yes, um, up to 50 miles. And nutria are, um, they're not territorial animals. They they live in social groups and family groups. So there's typically like a dominant male and several mature females that are reproductive and some juveniles. But um, juvenile males, as they begin to, to age and reach reproductive maturity, they're driven out from the family group by the dominant male. So those males, we see dispersal up to 50 miles. Um, and, and some dispersal of females as well. But so not only does their population size grow very rapidly, their geographic extent can also grow very rapidly. So where have you found them in California and in what sort of environments are you finding them? Um, we have found them in wetlands, uh, managed wetlands in Merced County. Um, they've been confirmed on San Luis National Wildlife Refuge um, in private ponds near the Merced River, um, on additional managed wetlands in Stanislaus County, in an irrigation canal um, out on Water District property near other managed wetlands in Fresno County. And then they were also recently confirmed um, on private property up in Tuolumne County. And what were the telltale signs that indicated that there were nutrients present? Initial find um, in March of 2017, uh, there was some damage being done in managed wetland pond areas that they um, initially just attributed to beaver. So they had a trapper come out looking for beaver, um, and that's when they just incidentally found this female. Um, But typically what we see and what we're looking for is um, a lot of damaged emergent vegetation. So typically there are floating cuttings. So tules and cattails, um, they really go for the basal portions of plants. They like to eat the the tubers and the roots, so they they sort of rip it up out of the soil, and then they eat the basal portions and leave a whole lot of cuttings um, just floating in the water. So you you end up with um, very large areas of just cleared vegetation with quite a bit of cuttings just floating, 
or piled up to create feeding and grooming platforms. And seeing how they weigh 15 to 20 pounds uh, on average, I was amazed to learn they can consume up to 25% of their body weight each day. Yeah, yeah. It adds up very quickly and does a lot of damage to um, you know the plant community itself, but also um, there's a lot of soil erosion. And um, eventually, you know, large populations can convert those, those wetland and marsh habitats just to open water um, and mudflats in coastal areas. And the reason for the great concern by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife have to do with the fact that this burrowing creature can really do some serious damage to our fragile levee systems, especially all those privately managed levees around farmland. Sure. And, you know, we've talked about how they live in these large um, family and social groups. And, you know, they don't build lodges. They burrow in. And, and that's, you know, sort of their, their escape habitat. And so when you have these large family groups burrowing in um, to levees and banks, you know, they can, they can burrow in up to six meters deep, but up to 50 meters in. Um, they build multi-level um, burrows. And so, you know, as, as population sizes and densities build up, that, that's going to have some serious implications for California's water conveyance system, um, you know, for, for water movement, but also for um, irrigation, for agriculture um, and water supply systems as well. The soil left on top of the mound, is there a, a signature for the uh, nutria, much like uh, the gopher or a mole would have? Well, so they don't burrow um, vertically like those animals do. They typically look for um, very steep banks, so they burrow in horizontally. So much like you would look for like a, a muskrat burrow, they're quite a bit bigger. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't say that there are distinguishing characteristics other than um, just a very large burrow into um, the side of fairly steep banks. So for landowners who live near levees or uh, maybe farmers who have property with wetlands that they're managing, would these burrows on a levee be towards the bottom on the dry side or on the wet side of the levee, if you will? They would be on the wet side. Um, and typically, at least, you know, we're still learning here in California and, and making observations, but what we have learned based on information in other states is that typically the openings to those burrows are below the water line. And so um, as water levels change, it may reveal those openings, but they're not always apparent unless you wind up with a levee breach or, or water loss or other damages. So, um, you know, typically what we look for is those telltale signs are those floating cuttings that we talked about because, you know, these are herbivores that they stay in the vicinity of, of a reliable food source. And so those, you know, with the, the vast amount of vegetation that they eat every day, they, you know, they eat quite a bit, but they waste up to 10 times that much every day. So it's, it's very apparent when they're, they're present based on the wasteful feeding behavior and, and the vegetation that they leave behind. In order that people don't confuse the nutria with the beaver or the muskrat, what are some identifying features of a nutria? So identification can be difficult when we look at um, overlapping size classes. So small beavers and large nutria have an overlap and juvenile nutria and large muskrats have an overlap. But, um, you know, they're very difficult to tell apart unless you're very close to the animal itself, which is 
you know, why we, a lot of the reports we've had of Nutria recently have, have turned out to be muskrats. So if you're close enough to be able to see or you have reliable photographs, um, the, the key distinguishing characteristic is the white whiskers. So Nutria and muskrats can both have white muzzles, but they have different colored whiskers. Um, so the Nutria have white whiskers and muskrats, as well as beaver, have dark, um, almost black whiskers. Some other distinguishing characteristics, the beavers have that characteristic wide, flat paddle tail. Nutria have long, slender, um, pretty much hairless, round tails. Muskrats have, have that same long, slender, hairless tail that's sort of um, compressed from side to side. And so in cross-section, it's almost almost kind of triangular, but it's very difficult to see that unless you're up close. So let's say somebody spots a Nutria, they've identified it. What steps do they take next? They need to immediately report it to the Department of Fish and Wildlife or their local county ag commissioner. Um, if they're on federal or state property, such as a, a state wildlife area or a national wildlife refuge, then they should immediately report it to their local staff. But um, either to the Department of Fish and Wildlife or the County Act Commissioner if they're on any other properties. And the number for uh, CDFW, I believe, is 866-440-9530. Yeah, that's to our um, Invasive Species Hotline number. Um, or there's additional information on our website for online reporting there as well. Wildlife.ca.gov. Correct. It's it's the Nutria, a giant invasive swamp rodent known for destroying wetland habitats and damaging levees, and it's being found on Sacramento's doorstep. If you are surrounded by levees or streams, lakes, ponds, be looking for the Nutria. Valerie Cook-Fletcher, Senior Environmental Scientist of the Invasive Species Program with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Have you tried microgreens yet? It's some of the healthiest food you can eat, and basically it's just baby vegetables that you can grow on your kitchen counter as long as there's some bright light around. We're talking with Gail Potthauer, Sacramento County Master Gardener out here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. And microgreens are exactly what that description is, isn't it? These are just small germinated vegetables and herbs. Exactly. As long as the vegetable or herb or even flowers are edible to begin with, you can grow any any cool season crop, any herb that's edible. Uh, nasturtiums as an edible flower could be grown. And it takes 10 days, two weeks, depending on the variety you're growing, to go from seed to your first harvest. And you grow them in a potting soil or a seedless uh, mix. That's how they're differentiated between sprouts, because sprouts are grown in water. These are grown in some sort of a soil. So you can use that soilless seed starting mix in maybe a pre-purchased container that has uh, several little containers that you could start the seeds in or but you have a unique way of doing it i save all my deli containers from from the deli in the grocery store something a salad bar came in or whatever and i just am sure that there's drainage holes in the bottom if they're not already there i punch them in with an ice pick and then i can use the cover that goes on that deli container to cover the seeds initially and then i use it as a saucer after that but i'm sort of cheap and lazy and i don't like to um 
throw anything away, so I reuse them. Be sure that they're scrupulously clean, so I always wash them in soap and water and even a little bit of bleach if I've used them um, before with soil, and they work fine. And the, the purpose of those drain holes, drainage is very important when you're starting the seeds. Absolutely, and what I found with microgreens is I um, start them in a moistened, soilless mix, plant the seeds, you don't have to plant them deeply, some I just sprinkle on top and kind of push them in, and I use bottom heat just because I have it around. And I had arugula that came up in one day, and mustard came up in two days. My beets came up in two days. Was, and then once they have grown a little bit, maybe a quarter of an inch or so, then I no longer water from above because they're so fragile it tends to smash them down. So I bought uh, water from the bottom. I'll put them in a little tub of water and let it soak up through the soil. So How long will you keep them in that little pot of water? Um, just until they're saturated, maybe half an hour or so. Then take them out and let them drain. Mm -hmm. And then put them back um, under the lights or in a window, wherever you have them. Because they grow so quickly, they don't really need a lot of light. Um, if you're growing out a tomato transplant, you need to have good light for them for um, several weeks. But microgreens grow so quickly, they don't need to be under lights a long time. Now, we should point out tomatoes are not part of the microgreen list. No, because while the tomato fruit is edible, the um, plants are toxic. And so just be sure that whatever vegetable or herb or flower you're planting is edible. And we should point out, too, that when you said you apply bottom heat, that doesn't mean you're sitting on the plants. That means that you've purchased what, a propagation mat. Right. I do have a propagation mat. Or you could put them um, in a warm spot on top of your refrigerator or wherever. Cool season crops like arugula and mustard and beets that I have growing right now don't really need the bottom heat. I do it just to get them off to a quick start. And we should also point out is you don't have to cook these, you eat them raw. Right, you do eat them raw. They're so fragile, If you'd sprinkle them on a dish when it's done, or I put them in salads, use them in place of lettuce on a sandwich or something like that. I don't like some of the uh, cool season crops, mustards and arugulas. I don't care for that, but I like them as microgreens because you get just a little bit of, you don't get a whole mouthful of arugula. Now, what I found amazing in your research, you found that the cotyledons serve well as microgreens. The cotyledons are the initial leaves that come out on any right. seedling, and then it starts forming new leaves. And you are basically advising people that when you harvest the microgreens, it could be at the cotyledon stage or at the first leaf stage. Correct. The uh, microgreens are eaten when they're very young. You don't need them to get much taller than the first um, true leaf because in some varieties, depending on the vegetable, can start to get a little woody or a little tough. So um, that's why they're great to grow. In 10 days or two weeks, they're ready. And you just snip them off just above the soil line. Yeah, you uh, don't want to pull them out, do no, you? No, no, with the scissors, just cut them off. You don't want to get um, soil on the part you're going to eat, so that you just cut them off, give them a haircut, and then you can kind of rinse them off and store them in the refrigerator maybe just for a few days. Best use them right after you cut them. But however, I did just find out, I had grown some arugula for a class I taught in January, and I came home and I had a whole flat of arugula left. I stuck it in my refrigerator and they lasted a month in there. I don't know if all microgreen varieties will do that, but the arugula happened to hold up really well. And this is an ongoing process, so you would be replanting in various containers, what, every few days? Right, you could do that. Um, I, I use small containers, like a small deli container, and so it doesn't, that will last me maybe a week. And so 
I don't want to have a whole glut of the same thing all at one time. So I'll stagger my plantings so that um, I can just continue my harvest over a long period of time. The convenience of, of going to a, a nursery or a big box store and getting one of their seed starting kits, those trays are usually maybe 12 by 8 or maybe a little bit longer and a little bit narrower, but they have maybe 32 to 64 cells per tray, which means you can start a wide variety of microgreens in that. Correct. I've found with using those sorts of cell containers, it's a little tougher to harvest them because you sort of have the side of each of the cell kind of in the way. So I like to use a flat, something, an open, okay. like a, a flat that's six by ten or something. So you have a, you don't have any um, obstruction when you go to harvest them. Like a tray that uh, you might find at a nursery that's holding uh, several four-inch pots. Right. Yeah, something like that. You want to just have at least a couple of inches of depth for the soil. Mm -hmm. Don't want it too shallow, but it doesn't need to be really deep either. The right. roots aren't going to be in there that long. All right. Now let's get to the meat of the matter. What microgreens are best in, in your estimation? You've grown a lot of different uh, vegetables and herbs for microgreens. Which ones do you like the best? They're basically all cool season crops, so beets, mustard, arugula, lettuce. You could do chives. I, um, you can do some herbs. Basil is good. Uh, parsley, if you like the taste of parsley. Um, those are the ones I basically use, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, and I tend to use up my old seeds. If I have a package of broccoli or cabbage that I'm not going to grow anymore, I'll use those for microgreens. Even Brussels sprouts that don't do that well in our climate, you can use those for microgreens. Now, you say cool season crops, but in reality, you could grow those year-round on your kitchen counter because you're harvesting them at the cotyledon or the first leaf stage. Correct. Um, I said that to differentiate between warm season crops, which would be corn and beans and tomatoes and peppers. Um, I've also heard, I haven't tried them, that peas, if you did peas, they're good. These pea shoots are edible. And um, so it's, it's what would be classified as a cool season crop, basically. You had something very unique in your deli containers because you tend to overplant on the edges, don't you? Right. And um, I didn't mention, you don't follow the seed package spacing recommendations. You sow them very thickly. So in a, a container that's six by six, I'll use up a half a half a package of seeds. So you want to have them really thick, no thinning required, and they're in the ground so in the soil so so short period of time. You want them thick. You want to be able to cut off a handful. I guess the easy way to plan it would be you have your tray or deli containers or whatever, and you, maybe you fill those containers maybe three-quarters of the way with that soilless mix. Mm -hmm. You sprinkle the seeds on top and then maybe cover them with a thin layer of more of that soilless mix. Exactly. That's what I do is I fill it maybe a quarter of an inch or so from the top, put in my seeds. I sow them very thickly, thicker than you'd think you'd want to, and then I just sprinkle in really lightly a little more of the potting soil. or. If the seeds are really tiny, you maybe don't have to do that at all. And give them a little watering and cover them and let them go. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that watering. Now, after you've planted the seeds and you want to keep that seed bed moist, are you misting it? I actually have a little apparatus that screws on an old water bottle. It has a lot of little holes, like a shower head. So it gives it a fine, not a mist, but it's a not a hard stream of water. And I use that initially, but then when I cover it, I really don't need to water it again until they've sprouted and say in my case I had things come up in a day or two and then once they sprouted take the lid off or you could use plastic wrap or whatever and um, then put them under lights 
and they'll be ready to harvest in another week. And then you water it from the bottom? From the bottom, yeah. Once they, um, I still water from the top maybe uh, the first few days after they come up, but when they start getting tall, watering from the top is going to knock the plants over, so then I do bottom watering. I've saved the best for last. The nutritional value of microgreens is amazing. In your research, you found that it is multiple times nutritionally better than a full-grown plant. Right. Some sources in their research have said that they can be from 4 to 40 times more nutrients in the microgreens than in the mature crop, depending on what you're growing. And I grow them just because I think they're kind of fun and they taste good. But it's good to know that I'm also getting some added nutrients there. Could you make a whole salad out of it or just use it as a garnish? I use it as a garnish. Say if you liked an arugula salad, you could make a whole salad of the arugula sprouts. That's not my thing. I like a little bit of it on there. So I always add them to salads. But you could put them on omelets or in crepes or say in sandwiches or on sprinkle them on soup. I mean, kind of unlimited. Gail Potower knows her vegetables, even the teeny tiny ones. Microgreens, give them a cry. Gail Potower, Sacramento County Master Gardener out here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. Thanks for talking to us about microgreens. Thanks, Fred. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. We're at the Proven Winners Roadshow at Matsuda's Wholesale Nursery Growing Grounds here in Sacramento. And we're talking with two people, Tom Ewing from Proven Winners and Bay Area landscape designer Michael Galley from Metamorphosis Landscaping. Tom, tell us a little bit about Proven Winners. I mean, when people go to the nursery, they see these pots, they see these plants, Proven Winners, and what's their story? Well, Proven Winners is a uh, the number one plant brand in the nation and might even be the number one in the world, in my opinion. But the, the distinctive uh, characteristics about Proven Winter plants is that they are trialed all over the country. So breeders bring us plants from uh, all over the world. We trial them for two to three years uh, in warm climates, cold climates, and everything in between. And it is that trial process that distinguishes Proven Winners from the, from the competition. So. Those plants then are uh, selected for, for their performance in every location across the country. And those that uh, meet the attributes that were intended to be bred for are uh, selected at the end of the year and then branded as a proven winner. And that includes annuals, perennials, and shrubs. You mentioned trial gardens throughout the country. Where are they here in California? In California, they're Southern California. They're at universities, uh, the universities of California. Uh, they would be at botanical gardens. There are actually several locations, and, and not just in California on the West Coast as well up into Oregon. Now, Michael Galley's been working with proven winners plants for years and years, and what are some of your customers' favorite ones, and which ones do you like? Oh, the ones that are easy are Butterlay lo and behold because it's just so beautiful flower production is intense low growing easy to care for and the one that makes my life a wonderful thing is Verbena Royal Chambray it's like some kid came and put purple spray paint all over your garden it grows intensely and we're getting three to four years out of a Verbena a four inch pot is lasting us three to four years and the Budlia you mentioned too attracts butterflies it's a butterfly bush oh and this name for that because we put them in and it looks like SFO in front of our house. They're just circling around because we put, also put in <laughs> salvia in that area. Salvia, Badalea, Lantana. It just is a pollinator's dream. 
And you have had to live with the last five years of dealing with a drought here in California. And oh, of, yes. the, of the proven winners that you've worked with, which ones have shown the most tolerance to drought? Oh, both the verbena. That's why we started it up with it. The verbena, salvias, the buddleia, and of course, lantana. It's the lantana. I mean, that seems to be the core of our new front yard gardens. Tom Ewing, of the plants that Proven Winners will be introducing, is there more of an emphasis on uh, low water use plants? Yeah, very definitely. Even in the shrub line, I, I would say, and particularly many of our perennials and a lot of our annuals, what we are now pushing is container gardening because we can manage the water in the containers much better than we can in the in the ground. Use less water that way, but still enjoy color. Yeah, small space gardening is becoming very popular, as is shade gardening. As landscapes mature, people are dealing with more and more shade. Maybe they're having to swap out some plants that were full sun lovers with some that are more part shade lovers. What are the new introductions of those that can take a little bit more shade? Well, a lot of our uh, uh, hookahs are, are a good one uh, in many cases. Um, let's see, some of the... Uh, no, I, I'm, I would say the hookahs are the golden bullet. They just do wonderful. They can take a little bit of extra heat on the hot on the hot summers as the as the sun drops low in September in the Bay Area. Uh, also, one thing we also recommend to minimize water use is the Aquasmart. When we plant our proven winters, we always put some Aquasmart in the planting soup as we put it in the mix, and it just makes the plant use about 30% less water in true operations. Add a little bit of sizzle to the eucharist because now this is a plant noted for its colorful foliage, does well on north sides of the house, and it looks great year round. Oh yeah, and some of the bigger varieties are really sexy. Some of the you know, I, oh, I'm sorry, I might mention too, I forgot coleus. Coleus is a real good one. We've got some beautiful, beautiful coleus for this new year, for 2018. And also Ipomeas, those do really well in, in uh, shade gardens as well. That's one thing I discovered in this presentation here today about your Ipomeas, which are a, basically a potato plant, and the size of the tuber could be very restrictive as far as if you tried to put it in a container, it might break out, but you have introduced a line of ipomeas with smaller tubers. That's for sure. The newest one is called Green with Envy, and it's very compact, beautiful foliage, dark green foliage, and that's a winner for this shade. Michael, I noticed as uh, the demonstration was going on, uh, the proven winners, representatives talking about the plants, I would watch heads go down and pens pick up as soon as uh, the conversation turned towards attracting pollinators. Now here in California, you have uh, noticed a lot of interest, I'm sure, as I have, of people want plants that attract hummingbirds and butterflies and bees. Oh, it's so much. It brings the clients such joy. I have an 86-year-old client that has been my client now for 20 years, and we put we took out the lawn during the drought, and we put in a pollinator garden, basically lantana, buddleia, and the salvia. And she called me up and said, thank you so much. I spend my mornings drinking coffee looking at the pollinators, and it makes her so happy. One thing I've learned about gardens, we talk about the plants here and there, but really, what makes a garden special is how it makes the client feel at the end of the day. If it makes a client a person happy, that's what our job really is. Tom, one of the plants mentioned here today was a salvia that attracts hummingbirds and other pollinators. Salvia is very popular here in California. Tell us about these new introductions. 
Well, they've been uh, bred for pollinator purposes. We know that's a big trend nowadays, and also bled, bred for longer color. So the it, seasons are extremely long on those, longer than the seed varieties and, that are typically on the market. And uh, I think the pollinator issue is probably one of the biggest issues we face right now. It's certainly a very popular part of the uh, program we have, and that's a big emphasis on that variety. What are those salvia varieties? The one we like is called Play in the Blues, and, and I would just say there's a series of those. There's some new varieties coming out or new uh, series in that, but Play in the Blues is the one I'd remember if I was everyone. Michael Galley, what is the biggest gardening trend that you're seeing now, especially over in the Bay Area, or a trend that you would like to see people adapt to? You're seeing the pollinator being a big trend. Of course, even though we have some water, water use is always going to be, we're going to learn the lessons from the drought, no more sods, and mostly also using the outdoors as an entertainment space. Patios, fire pits, better lighting, more subdued, more warm and luscious. Uh, You're seeing a direction of better quality patio materials. We're doing a lot of stuff on natural slates. Uh, Just making the job, actually making the house part of the garden and the garden part of the house. Creating that outdoor room. Exactly. Michael Galley from Metamorphosis Landscaping in Millbrae. Tom Ewing from Proven Winners. Thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Thank you, Fred. Thank you very much. Coming up after the news, it's Garden Grappler time, a chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred prize closet. Clue available at FarmerFred.com and the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page as we continue with our number two of Get Growing on KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, it's Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred prize closet. Now, you may recall on last week's Garden Grappler, we were talking about hybrid tomatoes. Well, in the spirit of equal time, today's Garden Grappler, name an heirloom tomato variety. An heirloom tomato variety. That would be... A tomato that is considered to be open-pollinated. That is, if you grew it on its own, in isolation, it would produce seed that could be replicated exactly in the next season. All right. A lot of popular heirlooms out there. I always advise people, if you're a, a vegetable gardener just starting out in the world of tomatoes, usually choose the majority of them as hybrids. You'll have more success with them. And maybe choose one or two heirlooms. And then uh, you can take it from there. You're going to find a a wonderful world of color and taste when it comes to heirlooms that you may not find in the world of hybrid tomatoes. And a lot of people have their favorite heirlooms. So I would like to know, you know, basically your favorite heirloom tomato variety. So name an heirloom tomato variety, especially one that you particularly enjoy. All five callers get a prize, special bonus prize for caller five, because as you know, in the Garden Grappler, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. So go ahead. Name an heirloom tomato variety. The number is to call in, 916-576-1578, 916-576-1578, or toll-free, 866-331-8255, 866-331-8255. Name an heirloom tomato variety. Terry, you ready? All right. Terry, the engineer, is ready to jot down your... Particular information, 
and then we'll get going. So while you're thinking about that, I will try hard for the next uh, 15 or 20 minutes or so, not to mention any heirloom tomato varieties. Sometimes I can't help myself. But uh, maybe to in the spirit of neutrality here, I'll just talk about upcoming garden events. All right. Looking for something to do this afternoon? Now until 3 o'clock, it's the Capital City African Violet Society plant sale and display. Looking for some indoor plants that have a great show? There's a whole world out there of African violets, styles you've never seen at a grocery store. Capital City African Violet Society plant sale and display going on right now till 3 o'clock today. It's free at the Shepherd Garden and Art Center at 3330 McKinley Boulevard in Sacramento. Plenty of free parking, too. Sacramento's organic advocate, Steve Zion, today until 3 o'clock is at the Home Depot at 1461 Meadowview Road in Sacramento. He's representing Our Water, Our World, and he wants to uh, tell you about some river-friendly gardening practices that will yield a beautiful, healthy, pest-resistant landscape and garden. He's going to lead you towards less toxic garden solutions to solve your garden problems. And uh, he'll be out there till 3 o'clock there at the Home Depot on Meadowview in Sacramento. Coming up Wednesday, it's going to be an open workshop day at an open garden at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, 9 a.m. to noon. We'll have more details about that uh, coming up a little bit later on in the program. Also going on next Saturday, a lot of events next Saturday, Spring Open Garden Day, 9 a.m. to noon, put on by the San Joaquin County Master Gardeners, and that'll be held at uh, the Cooperative Extension Office down there. They call it the Learning Landscape at 2101 East Earhart Avenue in Stockton, down by the airport. Informational displays, Master Gardeners to answer your gardening questions, and summer vegetable plants for sale, over 500 of them. Plus, you can bring in up to two tools for sharpening for free. That's not bad. Uh, Now, if it does rain, the event will be canceled. But according to the National Weather Service right now, next Saturday, mostly sunny with highs in the 70s. So it's Spring Open Garden Day next Saturday, April 14th, 9 to noon in San Joaquin County at the uh, Cooperative Extension Office there at 2101 East Earhart Avenue. The Woodland Library Rose Club is partnering, partnering with the Yolo County Animal Shelter for petals and pets at the Library Rose Garden at 251st Street in Woodland. They'll have a pet parade, games for kids, face painting, animal adoption, raffles, and refreshments. Plus, docents will be in the garden to answer your questions about roses. And that's going on next Saturday, 1 to 3 p.m. at uh, the Library Rose Garden in Woodland at 251st Street in Woodland. Yolo County Master Gardeners also have a plant sale next Saturday, 9 to 1 o'clock at Woodland Community College. That'll be in Building 400 at 2300 East Gibson Road in Woodland. And uh, among the workshops they'll be having that day will be on how to set up, maintain, and troubleshoot your own straw bale garden. And you'll get to visit the on-site bale garden there. And they'll have a second workshop next Saturday on floral arranging. And you can bring your own vase for taking your flower arrangement home. And that's uh, next Saturday, 9 to 1, the annual spring plant sale and workshop put on by the Yolo County Master Gardeners. Woodland Community College is the place, building 400, 2300 East Gibson Road in Woodland. Also going on next Saturday, it's the Sacramento Orchid Society's annual show and exotic plant sale. 
And we'll have more details about that coming up later in the program. That'll be at the Scottish Rite Masonic Center at 6151 H Street in Sacramento. And that again next Saturday and Sunday. Again, more details about that coming up a little bit later on in the program. Over in Placer County, the Master Gardeners there have their third annual garden fair coming up at the Rockland Community Center from 10 to 3 o'clock next Saturday. It's free, and the Rockland Community Center is at 5485th Street in Rockland, presented by the UC Master Gardeners of Placer County. It has speakers talking about all sorts of topics, including planting for pollinators, top 10 list for vegetable gardening, sustainable landscaping, and a lot more there at the Rockland Community Center next Saturday from 10 until 3. The uh, Old City Cemetery has a couple of events next weekend, Saturday and Sunday. They're going to have the historic Rose Gardens annual plant sale and tour. They have something like 500 rose plants propagated from their rare and historic rose collection. And there will be uh, tours of the historic Rose Garden as well. And that's uh, going on again next Saturday and Sunday. Next Saturday, 9.30 to 2. Next Sunday, 11 to 1 o'clock. That's uh, just the sale only Sunday. But they'll have the sale as well on Saturday mixed in with those tours. The Old City Cemetery is at 1000 Broadway in Sacramento. There's free street parking on the surrounding streets. And the California Native Plant Society of the Sacramento Valley has their 8th annual Gardens Gone Native Plant Tour next Saturday, 9.30 to 4 o'clock. The Gardens Gone Native Tour is a free self-guided tour featuring private gardens in Sacramento, Placer, and Yolo counties. The gardens are comprised of at least 50% California native plants. You have to register online. The tour is free, but you have to register to get the garden addresses and tour updates. And for more information, you can visit their website, sacvalleycnps.org. CNPS standing for California Native Plant Society. And again, that website, sacvalleycnps.org. All right, back to the garden grappler. Name an heirloom tomato variety. Well, let's get things kicked off here and open up the floodgates. Christy in Sacramento, go ahead, give us a uh, heirloom tomato variety. Good morning, Dr. Weish's. Oh, yes, one of my favorites, Dr. Weish Yellow. The Dr. Weish I've planted year after year, although this year I'm not planting it for some. I, I know why I'm not planting it this year. I have a smaller garden this year. But over the years, the Dr. Weish has been one of my favorite uh, yellow beefsteak tomatoes. Very productive throughout the year. Have you grown it, Christy? It's on my bucket list. All right. Do it. It's great. When I find it, I've got to find it first. <laughs> Where did I see it? Uh you know, it might be one you have to grow from seed, but look around. It, it may be out there. I, I bet there are some nurseries and specialty places that do have it. But in my travels, I don't, I don't recall seeing it because I, I think I would have bought it. <laughs> All right, Christy, good answer. What do we have for everybody today, Fred? We have how to save heirloom tomato seeds along with my informational sheet on terrific tomato tips. So that'll be coming your way, Christy. Cool. Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. So, Christy, caller number one. With uh, the Dr. Weiss Yellow, just an excellent heirloom tomato. I bet you can name an heirloom tomato variety, too. Give us a call, 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Name an heirloom tomato variety. We'll get to those answers when we come back to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE.
Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. We are in the midst of the Garden Grappler looking for five winners, five people who can name an heirloom tomato variety. All five callers get a prize, special bonus prize for caller five, because as you know, in the Garden Grappler, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. The numbers to call in, 916-576-1578 or toll-free, 866-331-8255. Hmm, an heirloom tomato variety. We've had one winner so far, Christy, who mentioned uh, the Dr. Weiss Yellow. So let's move on. Let's find somebody who can name an heirloom tomato variety. Marie in Acampo, how are you? Hi, Marie. Um, how are you? I'm fine. I'm going to go down to the floor here and pick up my pen that I dropped. Okay, I'm back up. <laughs> go ahead, Marie. Get, give us a uh, heirloom tomato variety. Cherokee purple. Cherokee purple is definitely a heirloom tomato variety. Have you grown that in the past? My husband has, yes. Okay, yes. Now, the... Uh, uh, Cherokee purple, very popular, and as the name would imply, it is a purple-colored skin. The Cherokee purple has been uh, popular for uh, decades. It goes back uh, since 1876, and uh, it is the dark color, a rich flavor, make it a very popular. It probably doesn't produce many pieces of fruit, but it tends to uh, produce very tasty fruit, and it's a very popular tomato, the Cherokee purple tomato. Marie in Acampo, good answer there with the Cherokee purple. So I'll be sending you from the Farmer Fred uh, closet of fine pieces of paper the uh, handouts on how to save heirloom tomato seeds as well as uh, my handout on terrific tomato tips. Perfect. Thank you. All right, Marie. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye. And caller number three in today's Garden Grappler is Mary down in Manteca. Hi, Mary. Hello. Hello, Mary. Go. I know you must be growing a lot of heirloom tomato varieties. I tried it last year, but the weather was so bad, hot and windy, that it didn't do much. <laughs> yeah, that can happen, too. They are finicky sometimes, especially when there are changes in the weather. So uh, what uh, heirloom tomato variety would you like to mention? Mortgage lifter. Yes, mortgage lifter. <laughs> and that, that tomato has a very interesting uh, history about it, and it's called... A mortgage lifter for a very good reason. It was a beefsteak tomato that uh, was hybridized or, uh, you know, all heirloom tomatoes are the result of some sort of hybridization. But over the decades, as they were grown in isolation, they became self-sustaining as far as producing seed true to the parent. And in this case, the mortgage lifter was a combination of, of uh, I won't name the other heirloom varieties that it was combined with, but the the gentleman who uh, developed the mortgage lifter basically was able from the sales of that tomato to pay off his mortgage. And it is a good uh, red beefsteak tomato. Have you grown the mortgage lifter? No, I haven't, but it looks very interesting. It is. It is a very interesting uh, tomato. It's a big beefsteak tomato. Mary, good answer. So I'll be sending you uh, my handouts on how to save heirloom tomato seeds along with terrific tomato tips. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Appreciate it. All right. A couple of open lines to call in. Name an heirloom tomato variety. Don't forget there is a bonus prize for caller five. So we're looking for callers four and five. Name an heirloom tomato variety. 
The numbers to call, 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. All right. Uh, Taking a look at the updated weather for our area, it's going to be nice uh, today and on Monday. So if you got some gardening to do today and tomorrow, look to be excellent days with highs uh, climbing today, 71 is the expected high today. Tomorrow, 79. But then on Tuesday, there's a slight chance of rain, 20% chance of rain in Sacramento with a high of 72. Then Wednesday, mostly sunny with a high of 67, so a bit cooler, which means that this rainstorm that's moving in is coming from the Gulf of Alaska. So it won't be it's no atmospheric river in our forecast. These are little dumps of rain, not too bad. A chance of showers again on Thursday, mostly sunny on Wednesday. Chance of showers Thursday, Friday sunny with a high near 70. And next Saturday, mostly sunny with a high of 74 degrees. So it's looking like a good weather ahead. And again, what we're looking at uh, for planting, if you're going to be planting warm season flowers and uh, vegetables, it's still a good idea. Call me old-fashioned, but just to hold off until the end, towards the end of April, the last week of April. Because I still believe that April 28th is official tomato planting day. However, if you're planting in containers, the soil has probably warmed up above 65 degrees or so. So if you have large containers, you could probably plant in those. If you have raised beds, get a soil thermometer. Check the temperature in those raised beds. And if the soil temperature appears to be above 65 degrees or preferably above 70 for peppers, go ahead and plant. Raised beds have the benefit of warming up quicker than your native garden soil. And uh, you can always get a head start that way because of the more loose and exposed soils that you're going to find in a raised bed. And again, uh, if you're off buying plants today at all the plant sales or hitting up uh, uh, the nurseries looking for uh, those tomato and pepper and other varieties, it might be a good idea to transplant the tomatoes and peppers into larger pots. Let them develop for the next three weeks in a area outside that gets part sun, but maybe is sheltered from the wind. And eastern exposure would be perfect. And then as it develops more girth and a bigger root structure, when you go to transplant those transplanted tomatoes that you've put into one-gallon containers, when you go to put those into the ground or your raised beds, they're going to be fully developed and may produce tomatoes on a slightly quicker basis. All right, call in number four in today's Garden Grappler. It's Patty in Elk Grove. Patty, go ahead. Give us a uh, heirloom tomato variety. How about black cherry? Yeah, black cherry. You know, I was thinking about the black cherry uh, not too long ago, like last half hour or so. <laughs> and I was uh, looking at it because I grew that one year. And I, if you go to uh, farmerfred.com and uh, towards the end on in the left-hand column, click on a, a link called Previous Features. And I've actually got all the tomatoes I planted there over a 10-year period and sort of my own judgment of what they were. And the black cherry actually came in rather high as far as taste test results. And it is. It's a dark-colored cherry tomato, and it does have a nice sweet flavor, too. Have you grown the black cherry? I have not, but I planted a bunch of the ones that you recommended last year, like the Ace and stuff, and I had good luck with those. Okay, Ace, of course, is a uh, hybrid variety, and I always right. advise people that if you are new to tomato gardening or just want a really successful garden, if you stick with the hybrids, uh, you have a better chance of success. Hybrids are usually bred for productivity, 
and a, a long season of production and other benefits that you may be looking for is maybe a compact size or um, color of tomato or, or whatever like that. And they tend to uh, hold up better. They tend to last longer on the vine, too, whereas yeah. some heirlooms have the problem of getting kind of mushy if you uh, leave them on the vine too long. So, okay, yeah, black cherry, I'd add that to my list, too. Patty, good answer there. So I'll be sending you the uh, Farmer Fred handouts on how to save heirloom tomato seeds along with uh, my handout on terrific tomato tips. Great, thank you. All right, now, we noticed that, don't go away, Patty. Uh-huh. Because, uh, well, everybody is off drinking mimosas <laughs> at, at brunch today. All right, so no fifth. I was listening on Easter, too. I'm a CPA, and so I'm at doing oh, every Sunday. Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry. And I just didn't call in last week, but I was listening. Okay, yeah, yeah, this is your time of the year. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Patty, if you can name another heirloom tomato variety, I'll give you the grand prize. Um, how about Lucky Cross? Lucky Cross? Lucky. Or, I'm, have to, no, 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 I'm always curious about varieties I never heard of, but I'll look that. You, darn it's it. under the 19 most delicious heirloom tomatoes of the world. <laughs> I see that Victory Seeds, which uh, carries a lot of heirloom varieties, does carry the Lucky Cross tomato, and that's a new one to me. And it's sort of a yellow uh, beefsteak tomato. Now I'm going to have to try this one. Uh, it says here it's a... Um, it's a sturdy potato leaf plant grown tall and does require uh, caging or staking. Beautiful bicolored, large 16 to 20 ounces with some ribbing at the shoulders. They are considered juicy, fruity, and similar in flavor to Little Lucky, whatever that is. But the reviews of it are, are certainly enticing. A lot of people are giving it five stars with superb tasting. And again, it's called the Lucky Cross Tomato. Hmm. I have a quick question since sure. I have you on the phone. I am pretty new to gardening. I've grown tomatoes for a few years. But sometimes when you get those big tomatoes with heirlooms, it'll get um, the, like, hard brown ribs through them. Do you know what I'm talking about on the outside? Yeah, and that's a, one of the drawbacks of a lot okay. of the larger heirlooms because they take so long to mature. They can get sun scald, and that can cause some of that. And it, a lot of the problem has to do with not getting protection from the sun Okay. And if they if it has a good canopy around it, that usually is enough to protect it. Okay. But uh, generally, there's not much you can do about it when it comes to heirlooms, except uh, maybe if for those varieties you know that are like that, is to maybe give them some afternoon shade. Okay. All right. Okay. So anyway, I have for you, if you don't have it already, I'll be sending you the Sacramento County Master Gardener Gardening Guide and Calendar. Oh, great. I don't have it yet. Well, I'll send it to you then. Well, thank you very much. Patty, thanks for playing our little game. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Fred. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. It's Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Well, the folks at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center have figured out maybe we shouldn't be having events in April on Saturdays, what with all the plant sales and garden tours going on this time of year. So they're having an open garden at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center this coming Wednesday, April 11th, 9 a.m. to noon. 
what's going on there. Let's talk with Master Gardener Andy McDonald. And Andy, there's a lot of things to see at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, especially for those who have never been there, not the least of which are the gardens you see as soon as you walk through the gates. Tell us about those gardens. Oh, the as you walk in the gate, it's the Mediterranean Climate Garden. And we have plants featured there that... Uh, we think homeowners might enjoy. Uh, they're plants that take a little bit lower water. Uh, they grow beautifully in our climate, which is a Mediterranean climate. At the moment, we are redesigning that garden. So some of the plants are on the small side and there might be a few bare spots. Well, that's a good thing to talk about is buying small. Now, naturally it's cheaper, but a lot of people want instant gratification and they tend to buy big and they tend to cram in the plants too to give it a fuller look which usually ends up as a jungle in just a couple of years so when you're purchasing plants for the fair oaks horticulture center you're taking into consideration not only well the cost of course but also the size of the plant and the spacing of the plant too oh yes uh it's really important to know how big that plant's going to get because uh, it is a common mistake people make. They, they wanna fill in that space, but that plant's gonna grow. And if you wanna really showcase something that you, that you were excited to get, you need to give it the space that it requires to look good. And plants that are in a smaller container tend to be healthier. They don't have, um, their roots are, are usually not as crowded as they can be in, the, in a larger uh, container. So is there a solution for those people who want to be able to see a full type garden, even though they're planting small plants and spacing them correctly? Can you infill with some sort of annuals that won't compete too much with those new plants? Yeah, annuals uh, fill it in. They tend to be really colorful. Uh, they're just there for one season and then you've got your space back. Now, one of the annuals that uh, they have used frequently in those gardens at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center are California poppies. But even though they're annuals, they, they can reseed and take over an area. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think some of those California poppies are being cleared out there, aren't they? Well, yes. In fact, yesterday I was out doing just that. Um, I don't clear them out totally. I just thin them out. But yes, they will happily reseed. Uh, they are beautiful and cheerful, and they do add color when you when you kind of need some, which is like the beginning of uh, of spring. Um, but yes, I was out thinning them. Fortunately, most annuals are easy to thin. The California poppy uh, in full bloom at the Fair Oaks Hort Center now. They are everywhere out there blooming. It's really pretty. It's really pretty. Very stunning looking when you when you come in from a distance. All right. Now, I understand that you're doing some remodeling out there to those uh, gardens that are just inside the front gate of the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. Uh, what are you replanting with? Uh, we're replanting with, well, Mediterranean type plants, which are uh, like specific to uh, what, like 30, 30 to 40 degrees uh, north and south of the equator. OK, which is where we are. Uh, the plants that are going in are low water use uh we're, we've put in some a lot of succulents but we've also got some other pretty interesting plants that are going in out there we do have uh, a mediterranean palm which is the only palm that's native to this to the um to the mediterranean itself it's a small growing one with multi trunks uh, we're kind of excited about that although it's very small and I understand you're putting in a Palo Verde tree. Yeah, it, it's called Desert Museum, which is a it's a smaller tree, um, multi-branching, very light, leafy, 
light leaves on it, uh, beautiful yellow flowers. It's very drought tolerant plant. So we're looking for a smaller container for that. At the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center during this open garden on Wednesday, there will be some demonstrations going on. We, they are, of course, peaceful demonstrations. And <laughs> what sort of demonstrations will be going on? Well, one thing that's pretty interesting is in the herbs, our herbs section, they're going to be planting um, a lot of warm weather herbs for right now. They're going to be putting in several varieties of basil that are a little more unusual, but available to the public. Um, that are both uh, culinary and can also be used like uh, as in for flower arrangements. One of those is the wild magic, which is a very cold hardy basil because usually basils need very warm weather. And um, another one is uh, called a red reuben, which is a very dark opal red color on the leaves. Uh, it has a very strong flavor and it's a very fast growing uh, basil as well. They're also gonna be putting in some bee balm, which is a real, uh, Lo pollinators love it. Um, it's also called bergamo or monarda, uh, bright magenta flowers that will bloom from spring all the way into fall. Now at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, uh, besides all the events, the herb maintenance going on, I would think too that over in the orchard, there will be some uh, fruit tree thinning going on. They are going to be doing some thinning. Uh, most of the winter pruning is over, but they're gonna be talking about summer pruning and thinning of the crops. Um, a few of the trees are still in bloom, so it should still be really pretty out there. Have they started putting in the warm season vegetables yet in the vegetable garden? That's going. That's uh, they're going to be doing that on Wednesday. They're going to be putting in warm weather and talking about warm weather vegetables. Now, some of them, like tomatoes, might still be a few weeks early, but they're going to be discussing all of that uh, with the public. And there are still some things that are uh, kind of left over from, from the winter, like the uh, potatoes are coming up. Uh, they've got a huge bed full of carrots still and some beautiful fava beans. Now, berries are starting to produce, and I would think that protecting them from the birds might be an ongoing project there at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center. I bet there's going to be some questions about that. Yes, and they're going to be demonstrating how to net them in order to protect your fruit from uh, birds and squirrels. All right, there's plenty going on at the Fair Oaks Horticulture mm -hmm. Center this coming Wednesday, April 11th. It's the open garden at the Horticulture Center. Fair Oaks Horticulture Center is at 11549 Fair Oaks Boulevard in Fair Oaks, south of Madison, in Fair Oaks Park, right next to the library. Look for the signs as you uh, go down Fair Oaks Boulevard. You'll find it. It's coming up Wednesday, 9 a.m. to noon, and, of course, it is free. And uh, we don't know what the weather's going to be Wednesday, but uh, it goes on rain or shine, right? We, right. Don't, we don't stop. <laughs> All right. No charge. Head on out to the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center this Wednesday for their April Open Garden Day. Sacramento County Master Gardener Andy McDonald, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thank you. Don't forget, this show is available as a podcast. You can stream it through the iHeartRadio app or go to kste.com and stream it there. Or you can download it. When you visit your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes or whichever service you use, and you can uh, keep it for your future reference. And that, again, uh, we fixed all the podcast problems, too. We had a bit of a problem last week's. Uh, did we fix that one? It, it's fixed. Okay, thank you, Terry. Last week's is fixed. You can listen to that in peace. It doesn't skip all over the place. We don't know what caused it. It was very mysterious, but uh, it got fixed, and uh, we think we fixed it for the future as well. So... A flawless podcast.
of Get Growing is available online, so you can uh, check it out there. And uh, don't forget the KSTE Farm Hour, which is uh, coming up at noon and plays uh, here on KSTE till 1 o'clock every Sunday and is also available as a podcast. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we're talking about an upcoming orchid show here in Sacramento. You like orchids? Give it a listen as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Coming up next weekend, Saturday and Sunday, April 14th and 15th, it's the Sacramento Orchid Society's annual Orchid Show and Exotic Plant Sale. It'll be held at the Scottish Rite Masonic Center at 6151 H Street in Sacramento, right across the way from the main entrance to Sac State. So let's find out more about orchids and orchid care and what you'll be seeing next weekend. We're talking with Eric Sandejas. And uh, Eric, tell us about what sort of orchids people are going to be seeing. It's not going to be your typical uh, phalaenopsis that you might see at a grocery store, will they? Yeah, uh, well, we will have some phalaenopsis there uh, on show and for sale as well. Uh, but also we will be um, showing a lot of other genera of orchids, such as uh, Paphiopetalums, Phragmopediums. Uh, the common cymbidiums that do really well outside in Sacramento, um, some bulbophyllums, which are some pretty exotic bloomers, and they kind of bloom in more of a pendant type of um, behavior, if you will. Uh, and then we have some others like Gongora and many, many exotic orchids. What is the range of sizes that the orchids will be at this show? There actually are. There's one species of a bulbophyllum orchid, that is very, 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 very small. And then also one of the largest orchids uh, is actually also a bulbophyllum. Uh, we'll definitely have a bulbophyllum phalaenopsis there. Uh, and then um, the largest orchid that exists is a type of, um, I think it's in the Dendrobium Alliance family. And it's too large for most people to keep in their collection. Now, you mentioned that there are some orchids that you could grow outdoors here. And a lot of people have the mistaken notion that orchids are rather finicky plants that need a lot of care indoors. I bet you might disagree with that. I definitely do disagree with that. So some of the best orchids to grow outside in our climate um, would be the cymbidium orchids and then less commonly known, uh, the Australian dendrobiums. Uh, the type of orchid that grows in southern Australia is the uh, dendrobium kingianum, et cetera, et cetera. And um, they do perfectly fine in our heat when they're shielded from the blistering sun that we have. Um, but the only difference you would need to do would be to provide it a, a, a dry, cool winter rest. Should those outdoor orchids be kept in containers and not in the ground? Uh, they should be kept in, in containers. So the Australian dendrobium are known as a lithophyte. And a lithophyte basically means they commonly grow on rocks. So a lot of inert uh, mediums, contrary to maybe soil. Soil is organic. Um, so if you were to grow it in soil, there's a higher chance that maybe the roots would rot away. So you want to keep it in, a, in either a clean bark or um, sphagnum moss, or even something inert like uh, volcanic rock. I would think if orchids are outdoors, they would attract all sorts of interesting pollinating insects. Uh, actually, orchids have many different pollinators. It's not just bees or butterflies, but it can also be flies and moths, uh, and can even be targeted towards specific species of, of, of bees. So a lot of oncidium orchids have like a, a very interesting flower that looks like a male version 
uh, of a specific bee, and that will cause an aggression in in a bee, uh, and it'll cause that that bee to basically kind of like investigate and want to attack that flower. But in doing so, it it pollinates. So orchids don't always have nectar. They most of the time they kind of trick insects into uh, pollinating them. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the care and feeding uh, of indoor orchids. Uh, I get the impression that they they need good drainage, but I imagine they need some sort of consistent moisture as well. They do. And, and actually, most orchids, they can handle drying out occasionally. Um, keeping them wet all the time is not exactly the best idea, especially when it's cooler, either in the wintertime or in the spring. Um, but they do like to dry out every so often, and more oftentimes than not, it's overwatering that's going to kill the orchid. Um, even the Phalaenopsis, um, they may look beat up, but you can actually let them dry out a lot. For it's very rarely is um, not watering an orchid going to kill it. Um, you'd have to really beat it up a lot <laughs> for it to die. But actually, there are some myths as well, especially with the Phalaenopsis. You don't want to water that with an ice cube. I know it's uh, it's an old practice, but if you think about it, Phalaenopsis orchids come from very hot and very tropical regions of the world, and, and they never come into contact with anything close to freezing. Now, that's not to say they can't handle cooler temperatures, but it's not generally a good practice to put an ice cube on the, on the roots of a, a Phalaenopsis. It's going to shock that plant. For the people who will be visiting the Orchid Society's annual show and sale next weekend, Somebody might come up to you and say, I'm new at this. I don't know anything about orchids. Give me something easy. Where where would you direct them? I would actually, honestly, I would direct people to keeping some of the Dendrobium kingianums. I know uh, the wonderful Gold Country Orchids, which is a local supplier and wholesale provider of orchids, uh, will be present there and they will have a lot of Dendrobium kingianums. And uh, they are a very profuse bloomer. They're very easy to keep. And they smell wonderful. Mm, that's nice. And how often do they bloom? Uh, they bloom typically once per year. Uh, and it's always going to be after that cold, dry cycle. Um, they uh, Many orchids need a, a cold um, rest, cold and dry rest, to initiate a bloom spike. Uh, and that's actually another reason why the Phalaenopsis don't typically bloom in common care. They need to be uh, chilled a little bit for about a month. Uh, probably 10 to 15 degrees temperature difference from usual. Do orchids need to be repotted on a regular basis? Yes, actually, I would recommend probably repotting orchids once per year or as soon as the, the orchid bark starts to degrade a little bit. And you'll notice that by when you touch the bark and if it has like a brown uh, watery substance kind of wash off of it, that's kind of a sign that the the organic matter is starting to break down. And it, it's very important to keep that fresh because orchid roots, they really need to be aerated. And um, the, the more free organic matter in, that's decomposing, uh, it's going to give rise to situations where fungus and other uh, ailments are going to be allowed to, to take hold. Now, what about fertilization of orchids? Should that be done on a regular basis? Basically, when in, in wintertime, you're going to want to give them a rest, probably stop watering as much and definitely not fertilize as much at all. In fact, I would don't fertilize at all. And then probably when the days start getting longer, the temperatures start to rise. And when you start noticing new growth uh, occur, then I would start uh, fertilizing probably at half strength. And then maybe a month or two in the summer, you can start fertilizing full strength. 
One one question I get about orchids, and I don't know the answer to it. If when the flower has died, but that flower stalk remains, will cutting that flower stalk initiate a new bloom? No, not not typically. Um, so the, the interesting thing about the the Phalaenopsis orchid. Now, of course, it'll send either one or depending on the type of Phalaenopsis orchid that you have, it might send more than one shoot up. Um, now, if you notice that the the, the flower stalk um, is still green after um, the bloom has terminated itself, uh, there's there's a chance that it'll actually bloom again. So as long as that flower stalk is green, I would refrain from cutting it. But if you notice that flower stalk turning brown, by all means, cut it off. Let's talk a little bit about what people will be seeing at that orchid show and plant sale next Saturday and Sunday at the Scottish Rite Masonic Center in Sacramento. I would imagine there will be experts there to answer uh, orchid questions, as well as maybe a workshop or two. Oh, there will be educational workshops uh, that'll be put on by uh, the wonderful Scott Farrell. He's very, very well uh, versed in um, orchid ailments and then just basically husbandry. Uh, and then at the same time, yes, there will be incredible orchid specimens from the best growers throughout the whole region, uh, and as well as vendors that have plants from all over the world. So if you want to see something that is incredible, that smells even more wonderful, by all means, join us. We'd, we'd love to have you there. And for a website with more information, what's a good one to go to? Oh, yeah. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the show or the Sacramento Orchid Society, you can visit our website at www.sacramentoorchids.org, or you can follow us on Facebook at Sacramento Orchid Society. All right. That website again, sacramentoorchids.org. It's the Sacramento Orchid Society's annual orchid show and exotic plant sale, Saturday and Sunday, April 14th and 15th, Saturday 10 to 5, Sunday 10 to 4, at the Scottish Rite Masonic Center, 6151 H Street in Sacramento, right across the street from the main entrance to Sacramento State. $10 at the door general admission. 16 years and younger are free with an adult. And the best part of all, there's plenty of free parking. We're talking with Eric Sandeas. He is with the Sacramento Orchid Society. He'll be there at the Orchid Society's annual orchid show and sale Saturday and Sunday, April 14th and 15th. Eric, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Coming up on future editions of Get Growing here on KSTE next Sunday, Juliet Voigtlander drops by from El Dorado Nursery and Gardens in Shingle Springs. We're going to be uh, talking about some landscaping tips. Juliet uh, spends a lot of her time, uh, besides uh, running a nursery, uh, offering consultation services to homeowners to give them good ideas on landscaping. Maybe she'll share some of those with us. Well, we'll find out next Sunday on this program. Then in a couple of weeks on April 22nd, our old pal Ed Livo drops by. We'll be talking fruit tree care and berries and a heck of a lot more uh, with Ed here on Get Growing. That'll be on the April 22nd edition. And coming up in just a few minutes on the KSTE Farm Hour, well, as you might imagine, uh, the lead story not only for California agriculture, but especially for California agriculture, is the tariff poker game going on now between the U.S. and China, and the stakes are getting higher, and more California farmers are seeing their commodities at a greater risk. You'd be surprised at the amount of exports from California that go to China in the way of walnuts and almonds and pistachios and wine and cherries as well. And a lot of that affects 
not only California agriculture, but a lot of the local agriculture economy as well, as you can imagine uh, with wine tariffs. So some of these uh, agricultural tariffs being suggested by the Chinese, 15 to 25 percent, and that has a lot of Central Valley farmers very, very concerned. We uh, have an update, too, on ICE raids of uh, farm workers, and we uh, find out the latest water pack information up in the Sierra. That's coming up next on the KSTE Farm Hour. Thanks for listening. I appreciate your support here on Get Growing. We'll do it all again next Sunday morning, 10 a.m., right here on Talk 650 KSTE. Bye-bye.